It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode six. It's sort of hard to imagine we've already made it into six uh, episodes, or we are at the sixth episode, especially considering we haven't really gotten a lot of traction moving through the uh, calendar of 1914 through 1974. And what's funny is we already have moved. Like today, we're going into the 1920s. It's sort of like, wait, 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 wait a minute. We, I thought we were starting in 1914. Oh, we did. That was World War I. Uh, but... It's the, the main thing that I've been focused on in the first five episodes, uh, which, you know, the last one was the Red Summer, is sort of laying the foundation of the culture and the tensions that we're dealing with, and so much of it internally, before we're going to end up with additional outside tensions, are internal, and that is a lot of the race, the segregation issues that we are facing. These are big issues in the time. And they are massive blind spots, and I'm going to say it this way, for the church of Jesus Christ. We are a Christian nation. We are a very, we could call it wholesome nation. I mean, most of us think back to this time period. It's like, oh, how pure. Yeah, but we had serious issues, and they were major blind spots. And it's interesting because it's in our heritage, and we are vulnerable to similar blind spots even though we apply them differently. And I will be addressing that as we move forward, that there are certain similar blind spots that I would propose we have today that may not be racially directed like they were back then. And I'm not saying the racial issue has dissipated. It still is an issue. But, you know, when you go from the Ku Klux Klan in its prime, 8 to 10 million members, okay, in the 20s, <laughs> in, the, in the period we're going into, 8 to 10 million members, to now six to 8,000. Okay, so that issue is very different. It still exists, and you can't just say, oh, that's gone. But this was a massive thing in, the, in its day, where and almost every single one, if not every single one of those, was a Protestant Christian that went to church. Okay, so this is deeply embedded in our spiritual heritage in this country, too. And it is not something to take lightly and to just wink at and say, well, we've moved on. But to actually say, okay, Lord, what needs to be addressed in our life? And I talked about that on the personal level, that when I have something in my past that the Spirit of God says, you know what, the reason you're struggling today is because we never remedied this. It's, I, I used the illustration when we were teaching in the Spirit of the Humble Message, which is like you're trying to water your plants and you have a hose that's connected to a spigot and you know you turned on the spigot. Everything should be correct, but nothing's coming out. And the, the first thing you're going to note, you know, if you're good with your hose, you know, understanding is that it has a kink in it. And the same is true with our lives. We can have kinks in our life that the Spirit of God will lead us to to say, let's unkink this so that the flow of my grace can work into you and through you. And the same thing can be true in a history that we have maybe kinks in our past that we don't know how to address because they've become so political that we end up getting into our dogged corner uh, and you know, throwing rocks at the other people that are throwing rocks at us, as opposed to actually saying, yeah, uh, there really is an issue I think we should address here uh, a little better than this. We are in, in this uh, message, we're moving in a slightly different direction than we have, where we've been addressing more issues of racial uh, challenge. In this one, we're dealing with a cultural breakdown. And it's going to come as a result of something that is supposed to rescue our culture. So we are experiencing, uh, not, just be, uh, not just after World War I, but even before World War I, we're dealing with a very serious problem with alcohol in our country. And after World War I, the crisis of what is going to later be called PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, they didn't have a name for it. In fact, they looked at it in World War I as uh, cowardliness. Uh, in other words, you were a coward when you started to break down and have uh, some, some type of meltdown when you were being bombed by these shells. World War I is a very extreme uh, study. If you go into my spiritual lessons for, from World War I series, 
you'll get a close-up and personal view of what some of these men went through uh, in these circumstances, but there had never been war like this. Modern warfare is very different than your old-fashioned warfare, uh, and where you are being barraged with millions of shells, mortar shells, <laughs> millions in a 24-hour period. And could you imagine being a, uh, a soldier in a trench when you're being hit by uh, over a million shells in a 24-hour period, and they wanted to know why these men were going wild and crazy. And there was a mental meltdown. And if you ever ran from the trench, you were a coward and you'd be shot. And so the after effects of this were so extreme and these men would oftentimes turn, I mean, you have millions of soldiers uh, that are, are uh, oh, whoa, guys, you aren't allowed to look at that. Uh, uh, so, uh, as, as this impact is taking place, imagine how these men are returning. They're trying to return to normal lives in America. Well, it's very hard to return to a normal life when you are dealing with some of this mental uh, stuff where little noises will set you off. You are extremely angry quickly. Uh, you've gone through a trauma that no one has been able to diagnose. There's no language for it yet because no one has ever gone through this yet and no one's ever returned from war. So there's no, no way of even showing empathy to this. It just looks like a failure of someone's character. Very interesting time in American history, but the rise in alcoholism is just going to explode because it's, a, it's a, at least some kind of medicine that takes the edge off of the strain that these soldiers are feeling and experiencing. So though we are this Christian nation, and we, we, we should have God as a solution, we, we should have uh, the way to uh, properly address this, but our Christianity here at the time is more of a form of religion than it is actually a power of God unto salvation sort of thing. It's the same thing many of us have experienced too. You can go to church and sit in church. That doesn't necessarily remedy all your problems. You have to allow the Spirit of God to enter into your life and address them with power. You see, this is a spiritual battle, and these strongholds in your life need to be addressed with spiritual muscle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And so we need to know what those weapons are, and we need to know how to utilize them. So I'm going to enter into a very unique period of history that most of us have never heard about. You've probably heard the term the Roaring Twenties. I always think of uh, Mickey Mouse for some reason when I think of this, and it is. It's sort of this time where this black and white era in our, our imagination, it's called the Jazz Age, and we have, it's also called the Guzzling Decade. The Guzzling Decade, mean drinking alcohol. Here's what's ironic, alcohol was illegal. And so we are going to have the rise of criminal activity or the gangster movement. So this is called becoming a big shot. And now when those slides were going through, some of you were taking peeks and that is illegal. <laughs> the noble experiment. So, and I have to admit, everything about this makes sense. And there's a lot of things that we're gonna cover that politically you could actually say yes and amen to but they're actually not the correct way of addressing something. Sort of like if we brought up affirmative action, uh, and I'm not trying to be political here, but one of the reasons why affirmative action just doesn't solve the problem is because it's government-mandated correction of a social disorder and a social inequity. Instead of a humanly chosen repentance to say, yeah, you're right. Uh, what, what I did was incorrect, therefore here's how we can make it right and make restitution. Instead of, it's a forced restitution. And forced restitution just doesn't work. When the government comes in to do what our soul is supposed to, at the individual level, correct and do, it actually creates a tension. And this is what we're gonna see here. We have a problem with alcohol. So how are we going to deal with our problem with alcohol in our country? We are going to make it illegal. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's like, yeah, that probably makes sense. That's not a bad idea. Hey, this is great. And yet when you create law, you oftentimes, if you're not dealing with what is the true problem, you spike the sin. 
And that's actually a biblical principle too. But I'm gonna call it the noble experiment. I mean, I'm not the only one that's called it that. That's, that's a famous phrase. But this is a noble experiment where we're going to say, what could happen in this country if we removed the alcohol from it? I mean, just imagine how sane we would be. They were firm believers that every bit of crime in our country at this point was a direct result of the demon alcohol or the demon liquor. They were convinced of that, the church was. If you could remove alcohol, you remove basically the sin propensity. Okay, that, that's a bad theology right there, but that was actually how a lot of people were thinking. Billy Sunday, great uh, evangelist, uh, Christian leader says this, the slums will soon be only a memory. Why? Because of prohibition, guys. They are going to prohibit alcohol. That's what prohibition is. So the slums will soon only be only a memory. We will turn our prisons into factories and our jails into storehouses and corn cribs. This will solve it, guys. We're going to change this country. If we can do this, this is one of the greatest movements, the greatest acts a Christian nation has ever done. And we will become moral. So I'm just calling this a historic factoid for lack of a better way of describing it. Listen to this, this is so fascinating. Since alcohol was to be banned and since it was seen as the cause of most if not all crimes, some communities actually sold their jails. We don't need this anymore. And you can only imagine how exciting this must have been. In the very beginning, there was this whole temperance movement. And everyone was so thrilled that this actually got through and became an amendment in the Constitution. I mean, this is big time stuff. And so you can sort of feel the, the wave of, I mean, for us, it'd be the conservatism. It's like, yeah, this is a massive victory. And yet, most of you, if you were to look back at prohibition, are going to say that was an absolute disaster. And it's sort of a sad commentary because politically speaking, if you were to put on political glasses, which we've spent this entire series not doing, but if you were to put on political glasses, you have to admit, this makes a lot of sense. This is a great idea. So the Roaring Twenties is oftentimes what it's termed, also known as the guzzling decade. Talk about the law giving sin its power. Wow. So Romans 7, 7 through 8 says, what shall we say then? This is Paul speaking. Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I remember hearing about this one college that uh, usually at college you come up with something that's like, hey, to really be able to graduate from here, you have to do such and such. And at my school, one of the things that you were supposed to do is catch a falling pine cone. And we lived up, you know, we was in the Northwest in Spokane. And unless you catch a falling pine cone, you can't officially graduate. Now that's all off record. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, so as a freshman, you hear that and you're like, I need to catch a falling pine cone. So for four years, you're literally trying to catch a falling pine cone. Guess who did? <laughs> I caught a, a falling pine cone. I just want you guys to know that. And so you'll get these uh, unrecorded you know, requirements that just exist in a collegiate environment. For this one college, it was that you need to jump from the second story window of this particular hotel into the pond below. You know, every, every graduate needs to somehow make his way or her way to that window. And so the hotel proprietor is disturbed by this. I mean, just imagine the liabilities. You know, they're jumping from his window into this pond. So he sticks a big sign on the outside uh, and this is when it had just started. So there are a few guys that had gone over there and jumped out of the window and go, hey guys, you should go over there, this is really cool. He sticks a big sign on the outside that says, don't jump from this window. And that's when it rose to the level of now every college graduate has to jump from that window. The law gives sin its power. It is a strange phenomenon that it exposes sin. And even, remember that rebellious spirit I've been talking about in the past weeks, whether it's in sermons or, it's that when you say you can't do it, then suddenly someone says, well, I must now. And there is a propensity in us. Now, the solution to our life is not just law. The solution is actually Jesus Christ. But the law has, has been necessary in our life to expose the fact that we are actually sinful. 
because it actually showcases, it shines a light on a certain dimension of us, which is why it says it gives it power. It shows it. It reveals it. It's like the turn on the light in the room and you see the scurrying bugs and the cockroaches. It's like, ah, they really are in here. And some of us could say, I don't have cockroaches. There's no cockroaches in here. And then turn on the light and say, whoa, there are cockroaches. And that's what the law does. But the law can't save us. And it sure can't save our country. You see, one of the things that should be evidenced in our country's history is that you are not going to change the soul of our country in and through Congress passing a law. And yet we still, even after all of these many, many experiments, still want the law to be our rescuer. And yet the law, though it can have a good element to it, because without law, you can't incriminate a lawbreaker. And to create justice and order, you must have law, and then you must have a proper response to someone breaking the law. But to change the soul of a country is different than that. If we really want to see the soul of a country come to Christ and be awakened, God doesn't just work through laws. He works through the power of the gospel. The gangster movement the explosion of organized crime to fill the void of alcohol distribution. Now, this isn't to say that there weren't gangsters uh, before this time. You know, those characters from uh, Italy, from Sicily, very specifically, that made their way over, and uh, yeah, there's been so many movies made about these guys, but they were already here. So we had that Italian or that Sicilian uh, root system already here, and they were working in brothels, which are like prostitution houses, and various other illegal trades. They, that's what their, their goal is. You know, crime is sort of going to look for the one thing that is illegal, the one thing that you're not supposed to do, and you can get a lot of money out of that. Uh, and because you, you can charge a pretty penny for something that, you know, hey, they're risking great, uh, a great deal to make it available to you. And so when alcohol is removed, when alcohol becomes illegal, this becomes their big deal. And this is going to explode because we have a nation that is addicted to the stuff. And now this nation craves it and they will pay big bucks. And this is going to create this explosion of underworld, underhanded gangster activity, which we know as the mob uh, here in America. So this is going to help explain uh, the title that I have, Becoming a Big Shot. So there's an art to becoming the big shot. See, I don't know how many of you use the term big shot. That's sort of an old term now, but that's a good mob term. Uh, and because the big shot is the big shot. He's the mastermind. He's the top gangster. So I, there, underneath this, I say, and the pampered privilege of smiling out of court. Now, that, doesn't, that isn't the way we would say it. The way we would say it is, all right, so you bring me to court and you have charges against me, but I'm the big shot. Which means if I'm the big shot, my privilege is that you can't actually incriminate me. And I'm going to smile the whole way through the court case, and I'm going to drive the, uh, the prosecuting attorney crazy, and all the media can see my smile. And then when it's all over, they'll have nothing on me, and I'm going to walk out of court smiling. Why? Because I'm above the law. Because I, you know, technically he's paid off everyone is what he's done. This is the ultimate dream, guys, right there. There's the mob boss dream, the big shot. So the big ambition, here, here it is. See if you can wrap your mind around this. When everything, including the kitchen sink, is thrown at him, he smirks, winks, and chuckles, and then proceeds to walk out of the courtroom untouched. Oh, boy. I mean, that's like the dream for every one of these guys. When they're, when they're getting into this gangster lifestyle, that's the dream. They all want to be the big shot. And that's the evidence that you are the big shot right there. When you can pull that off, you've done it. And Every one of the cronies uh, that you work with, I mean, they, they know you're, you're the real deal. You're the, you're the big shot. So the bootlegging cartel, bootlegging is the process of working with uh, illegal alcohol. So you get all sorts of different terms uh, when you start dealing with the, the mob. So in 1920, Torrio, Capone, and O'Banion ruled Chicago. Now, I'm not expecting you to know those names. However, there is one name in that list that probably stands out. Like if I say, yeah, Johnny Torrio, yeah, Johnny the Fox, Torrio, you're like, never heard of him. 
Al Scarface Capone? And you're like, you heard of him. You know, he's, he's probably the most famous gangster of all time. However, he was trained by Johnny the Fox Torrio, right? So, I mean, you'd think the guy would be known, right? And then O'Banion, who in the world is that? Well, there's a reason probably why you don't know who he is. So here's our three guys. And they're controlling Chicago, which likely is one of the biggest strongholds, other than New York. New York and Chicago were the big mob centers, and there was a lot of money flowing through here. And so isn't it just interesting to see pictures like this? I don't know what it is, and it's always been fascinating for Americans. Americans have always been extremely intrigued. They look at these guys as superstars, which is part of the problem. When I get to the John Dillinger case, you're going to recognize it's like we have a serious problem in America. It's like you'd call it curiosity slowing. You're driving down the interstate, and there's this terrible accident off to the side, and then suddenly all the traffic slows up. But it's not because there's any blockage in the road. This is off the side of the road. But everyone wants to slow down and stare. They want to see something. They want to see something, even if it's horrifying. They want to stare at it. And there's a quality that we possess as humans, which isn't always good. It's the same type of quality that leads people to go into arenas and watch people get fed to lions in the olden days. It's like something's disturbed inside of us. And there's something about the mob that is so intriguing to people. And I have to admit, when you start reading about it, you're like, oh, wow, that is... Uh, it, is it, it makes great movies. It makes great storylines. So a quick tutorial on the ambitions of every gangster. Now I'll go into this in just a second. But they all start Jack Rowling. And Jack Rowling's sort of humiliating. It's the low-budget gangster type of operation. But if you're new, that's where you start. You have to earn your way up the ranks in the gang. And then ultimately your goal is to become a big shot. But then there are big shots and there are big shots. There are big shots over other big shots. And ultimately you want to be the one that is the big shot over all the big shots. You walk smilingly out of court. That's the big shot that you really desire to be. Chicago, Illinois in the 20s. It's funny, I was born here, so there's a, I have a unique attachment uh, to this storyline, even though I <coughs> hope it doesn't uh, end up in my behavior at all. Hopefully uh, it's so I can stand against it, be, be a little Elliot Ness. He was the police officer that took down Capone. Uh, that's more of what I would be, prefer to be. Uh, but it's ruled by corruption, sort of like our soul. It's interesting because if you were to study Chicago and look at it as a human soul, it makes a lot of sense. You see, the conscience has been paid off. The police force that is supposed to be enforcing prohibition is being given money to look the other way. And so what sort of justice system are you going to have when the people that are doing the illegal activity can just buy off the judges and pay the policemen? And I could say in the human soul, when we start searing our conscience to start looking away from the clear conviction of sin in our life, we become a mob-ruled city. And when I have described the, the factory you know, that is the human body, when, when we're going through Ellerslie in our discipleship, and I describe the flesh as two-ton Tony, uh, you know, I, I call him a mob boss, and that's exactly what it is. It is a power control. It rules through fear and power, sheer exertion of strength. And we don't have the ability to overcome it. And the police force didn't have the ability to overcome it either. This was a huge problem. And Chicago was just, you know, spitting in the eye of, of the police force, even nationally. It's sort of like, you can come up with your laws, oh, federal government, and look how we're going to uh, act towards it. But it was ruled by corruption. And some people might say it, Still is, uh, but that, that's a separate point. We're, again, we're not dealing with modern politics, right? <clears throat> Introducing Dean O'Banion. He's the big shot of the north side, but not the big shot of Chicago. Okay, so imagine that you're, you're Dean O'Banion, and you're a big shot, but you're not the big shot. What do you think a big shot desires? but to be the big shot. And this is gonna be his downfall too, is he's dealing with Torrio and Capone, who are also big shots. And of course, Torrio is the big shot. And Dino Banyan really wants to be the big shot. So I'm gonna just call him a big shot in Chicago. Did you like how I did the, uh, the graphics up there? I have a little lighter colored. And if you look at just to the right, in the white, it says shot in Chicago. 
That's a pretty good description. Yes, yeah, so you guys need to appreciate this. Uh, I got all sorts of cool artistic things I'm putting into these messages. The end of Dino Banyan. I mean, you just met this guy and he's already having his end. The poor guy, right? He is shot to death in his flower shop November 10, 1924. So we never got a chance to see it. They didn't have any, you know, uh, video uh, capture of this. And so this is the, uh, the drawing that was given. That's the actual flower shop. And then they overlaid it. And this is, you know, done back in the 1920s to show what happened. Uh, and Dean O'Banion was one of the quickest, smartest guys. This guy was pretty impressive. I mean, he would have been a big shot. And he knew how to get to his gun quicker than anyone else. He practiced it all day long because he knew that th these types of things happen. This is how the mob works. And so he was always doing it, but he trusted these three that were coming in because they were gonna be buying flowers for a funeral for one of his friends. And so he trusted them and he was off his guard. And Dino Banyan went down. So there's a wrong way to becoming the big shot. Now I'm speaking like, a gang like we're thinking gangster here for a second. By the way, I don't think gangster in my life, but if we were to think gangster for a bit, you can at least understand what we're saying here. Don't cross Torrio and Capone. I mean, what's funny is we could have probably told them that now. It's like, no, you don't want to cross Al Capone. I don't know who Torrio is, but don't cross Al Capone if you want to keep walking smilingly out of court. And we need an end quote there. So gangsters start out jack rolling. So that's the term. That means something like this. Following a drunken man, staggeringly belatedly homeward and taking his money from him. It's low-budget gangster. You know, it's like, okay, there's a drunk guy. You can just follow him around. He's like staggering down, you know, through the alley. And then you sort of come up to him, rough him up, and take his wallet. It's like, yeah, that's low-budget gangster uh, work. But that's where everyone starts. They start jack rolling. But all desire to be the big shots or a gangster with citywide and even nationwide power who can walk smilingly out of court. The easiest but most dangerous way to become a big shot is to break in on another big's territory. Uh, hint, this is what Dean O'Banion is going to try and do. He wants to move in on Torrio and Capone's territory. And like I said, you guys probably could have warned him about that. Doesn't he know the legend of Al Capone? Actually, at this time, Al Capone isn't a legend. He's just a very mean scoundrel, okay? And you don't want to mess with them. This is part of what becomes part of the legend. All the big shots in Chicago were Sicilians, Johnny Torrio and his protege, Al Capone. They were raking it in on the west side of the city. O'Banion, their counterpart to the north, was not content making less. O'Banion wanted to separate. So he wanted to separate and run his own operation. In other words, so he could grow and potentially take some of their operation. There's a famous gangland quote, once you are in with us, you're in for life. Now, if I had the, the cool Sicilian accent there, you guys would be very impressed, but if I tried to do it, you'd just say that was terrible. Another famous gangland quote, we forget nobody and we forgive nobody. Now, that, that wasn't bad, that was pretty good, even though some of you are like, no, he still didn't get it. So here's James O'Donnell Bennett from the Chicago gangland. He wrote this back in the late 20s, maybe early 30s. So it's very interesting just to sort of read what they were writing in Chicago. He was very disturbed of what had happened to his city. And uh, so he said, some drops of the venom of race hatred, a rabies which under less squalid conditions sometimes get itself proclaimed, acclaimed as patriotism, helped foment O'Banion to rebellion against Torrio and Capone. Now, just in that line, there is a gem right there to recognize that this time period in history was actually aware that sometimes because of race hatred, you can classify it under the term patriotism. That race hatred was oftentimes misunderstood to be patriotism, when in actuality what it is, is it's hatred of a race. O'Banion was pure American. Now, he was Irish in his lineage, but he was American in his mindset. He's a pure stock American. These guys were Sicilians and they were coming into America and taking what belonged to Americans. So you even see, ironically, race hatred as the motivation even for what we're seeing here. 95% of the bootleg and beer running gang leaders were of foreign birth. Of that 95%, 85% were Italians and Sicilians. 
That left only a paltry remainder of true blue Americans as beneficiaries of this monster haul of cash. O'Banion could not bear the thought of his outfit, 100% American, not getting this in their pockets. Johnny the Fox Torio. Don't you love nicknames like that? They're very intriguing. So he's the big shot, the great mastermind behind the Chicago outfit. There, there's Johnny Torrio. And he's a smart guy. I, I was studying Johnny for a while and very intriguing. Like when you meet these guys, all three of these guys, if you met them in a social situation, you would really like them. And so whoever these big shots were, it's like there was something about them very pleasant. Very, and they, they would be very nice. They'd be the sort that would like pay for your dinner. And they would just take care of you. Oh, no, it's on me. And they were very generous uh, hearted men. But if you cross them, you're dead. <laughs> it's like that simple. There's only one solution. You cross me, you're dead. But that's the way they were trained. This is a survival thing. So Johnny Torrio is uh, a mastermind, truly. So here's what Elmer Irie, the U.S. Treasury official, uh, the U.S. Treasury was in charge of dealing with uh, all of the bootlegging and all the prohibition violations. And so uh, they had their work cut out for them. So here's what he said. Torrio was the biggest gangster in America. He was the smartest and I dare say the best of all the hoodlums. Best, referring to talent, not morals. Virgil Peterson from the Chicago Crime Commission said Torrio's talents as an organizational genius were widely respected by the major gang bosses in the New York City area. So we're going to come up with the term organized crime. And so this is not just crime, like a whole bunch of jack rollers, you know, walking behind drunken men going home. And it's like, we have crime in the streets of Chicago. No, this is organized crime where different criminals are actually going to start working together and covering for one another. And they create leagues and they create networks and systems of payoffs. I mean, it's an elaborate, uh, very complex network uh, that your brain would find very fascinating, but ironically, it is like a cancer in our country. This, was a, this is still, to this day, a major problem in our country. And it all started, ironically, with us trying to do a really good thing for our country, and that is remove all the alcohol. Herbert Asbury, who's a crime journalist, said this, as an organizer and administrator of underworld affairs, Johnny Torrio is unsurpassed in the annals of American crime. He was probably the nearest thing to a real mastermind that this country has yet produced. So you guys know who, who it said was his protege. Who is he going to train? Who is he going to mold in his image? A man named Al Capone. So here's some big shot advice. It, well, isn't it fun? We can sort of sit in and listen to a little big shot advice from Johnny Torrio. What would he say uh, about being a big shot? I wish I could do my uh, Sicilian accent. Uh, you know, I'm just holding out on you guys. I probably have a really good one, but uh, it's a business. If you, do a, if you do a wrong to me in our business, we'll settle it without going to court. And if you do a wrong, you'll know you're doing it, and you know the consequences. And here's another Johnny Torrio big shot advice. Keep your hands clean and let others do your dirty work. This is one of the reasons why they had such a difficulty nailing Capone and getting him uh, arrested. Because it was always his cronies that did the dirty work. Because this is Johnny Torrio's advice. And so they're going to ultimately get Capone on tax evasion. That's how they're going to send him to, uh, to prison, is on tax evasion. Isn't that the most ridiculous thing? Even though he was associated with 700 or more murders, it was always someone else that did it. He's like, I, I didn't do it. Look, I have an alibi. He always had an alibi. He always made sure he was in a certain place when the, when the deed was being done. So Al Scarface Capone, he did have a scar on his face from an earlier incident in his life. And he's the most famous big shot of all time. Now that's arguable. I mean, there's been some other big shots uh, from different mafia rings around the world since. But, you know, in America, yeah, probably. There he is, guys. You can see the scar on his face if you look closely. And he was a famous guy. People wanted to be in a picture with Al Capone. It's like everyone knew he was dastardly, but he did it so well and so smoothly and so confidently where he knew he was untouchable that he just sort of strode through culture 
as if it was water off a duck's back when people accused him or the, or the government said, we're going to get you, Capone. He'd just laugh and chuckle, and that intrigued people. Because technically, every single one of us craves that. We crave that fearlessness. We crave that joviality in the midst of difficulty. We do. So Johnny Torrio is going to knock off Dean O'Banion. Okay, that's actually what you're going to see. Now, that's never been proven, so some of you could say, hey, we have no evidence of that. It's pretty clear, okay, that Johnny Torrio and his guys knocked off Dean O'Banion. So Dean O'Banion's outfit are not too happy about that, and they need to get revenge. And so they show up at Johnny Torrio's house and fill him full of seven bullets, but he survives. And so he's in the hospital, and he will not say who shot him. He knows exactly who shot him. His wife won't say. It was right in front of his wife. She won't say. Because there's one rule in gangland, and that is that you never snitch. You never say anything about it. So literally, we still don't know who shot him. And yet, this was too much for him. As, as the papers said, you know, he can dish it out, but he can't take it. And so he's going to say this to Al Capone. It's all yours, Al. Me? I'm quitting. It's Europe for me. And so he left it all. And he is going to turn over the entire Chicago outfit to Al Capone. Here's what it says in Wikipedia. I know, great source. Torrio left a criminal empire that grossed about 70 million a year. Well, that doesn't sound like that much. That's 1.2 billion in today's dollars. This is just the Chicago outfit. 1.2 billion on illegal activities from bootleg liquor, gambling, and prostitution. The Smithsonian Magazine says this, in 1929, after Torrio gave Capone the reins of the Chicago outfit, Capone conquered the city through a sophisticated network of brothels and speakeasies. So a speakeasy, no one actually knows where the term came from, other than the fact that you'd come to a door and you'd probably whisper like some secret code to get in, and so maybe it's like, hey, when you come to the door, speakeasy. I, I don't know, you know, that's, that's a guess. But it's a place that sells illegal alcohol. And so it's like a bar, but an illegal bar. By 1929, he had accumulated a net worth of over 40 million, approximately 550 million today, and associations with over 700 murders. Capone also controlled the sale of liquor to over 10,000 speakeasies. To help maintain his reign, Capone often paid off top city officials, rigged local elections, and sometimes even kidnapped workers and henchmen from rival outfits. Nice guy. Al Capone said this, Hey, I make my money by supplying a public demand. If I break the law, my customer, the, of the best people in Chicago, are as guilty as me. He's basically saying the entire culture is drinking my alcohol. So if you say I'm doing something illegal, well, we all go down. I'm just you know, serving them what they're asking for. That was his plea. Uh, you know, I, the government didn't really appreciate that. So here's our concept that I want to drive to the surface. Because when I'm talking about becoming a big shot, I want to tag this idea. And that is smilingly, which is a weird adverb. Most of us have never used that as an adverb, but this is the term. Smilingly walking out of court. The great ambition of the big shot. Now, I, the reason I want to unpack this is because I want you to recognize that it there is something that is tagged inside of us when we hear this, even though we don't see it at first, because we're looking at Capone and we're like, well, I don't want his life. I don't want to be a gangster. Praise God, I'm glad you don't, okay? And if you are thinking you'd like to be a gangster, then we have other things to address uh, in you. But what he is desiring is technically, even though you have to squint to see it at first, the same thing we want. We want to be able to face life's greatest traumas and challenges and all the working of the devil against us, and we want to walk smilingly through it. Bombs are going off around us, and we stroll right through it with a smile. That's actually what we want. But we've never thought of calling it that. I mean, because we're not after being a big shot in the Sicilian mafia. That isn't what we were after. And yet what they, these guys are after in their fallen, depraved state is actually something we're all after. We desire something. God designed us for it, but we can't see it. And the world will always go after it upside down and in the wrong way. Jacob, when he is first, uh, I should say, conceived, he's in the womb of Rebekah. And there is a battle going on in this womb between a firstborn, Esau, and a secondborn, Jacob. 
and they are wrestling in the womb. And Rebecca is even asking, it's like, why am I thus, is her, her question. And God asks, actually answers the question. He says, there are two nations at war within you, two manner of people, and the first shall serve the last or the second. In other words, that second one, who is Jacob, is actually going to rule over the first. And the same is true in your life. You could say, why am I like this? And God could say, well, there's two manner of people within you, flesh and spirit. You see, God is at work in you to bring about his purposes, but you have another faction warring inside of you that wants to diminish that, and that's your firstborn life. That firstborn life, Jacob's firstborn life, what is he doing when he's coming out of the womb? He's grabbing Esau's heel, and he thinks, if I could just have what Esau had, if I, if I could just be the firstborn, then I would have what I'm after. He thinks Esau has it. So he's going to con him for his birthright. He's going to con Isaac for that blessing. Really awkward story, right? And then Esau is going to vow to kill him. You see, he thinks Esau has what he's after, when in actuality he's using his grip. Jacob means heel grabber, deceiver, supplanter. He's been grabbing the wrong thing, guys. It's the same thing these guys are doing. They're grabbing the wrong thing. By the power of the flesh, they are attempting to gain something that is immortal. But the only way to give that, get that is to let go of the first and to put your hands on God. And that's what Jacob is ultimately going to do. He's going to grab God and wrestle through the night. And he's going to get a new name, Israel, which has always been the definition of Israel ever since. And by the way, when you're grafted into Christ, you're grafted into true Israel. You are one that grabs a hold of God and will not let go. You stopped grabbing the first. You're no longer trying to pull an Al Scarface Capone or a Johnny the Fox Torio. You're no longer trying to do it in your own strength, for your own benefit, for your own glory, so that you could be a big shot in this world's eyes. But now you recognize all I want is for Jesus to be the true big shot. When you change that orientation, everything flips. So there's our big shot, guys, walking smilingly out of court. And by the way, guys, this is the thing. If you could have something, you want this. And every gangster is like, Capone did it. He strode right out of court. He paid off all those officials. He got away with it. 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 Like I said, the only thing that eventually got him was tax evasion. They're trying to get him for murder. They can't get him for murder. They get him for tax evasion? Come on. And he walks smilingly out of court. So look at this. When he's finally picked up, even when he's getting his mug shots, he's smirking. And look at this. When he goes to Alcatraz, he's smirking. That's purposely, guys. He's wanting to make a statement. You guys got nothing on me. You put me in here, I'm going to escape. Right now, Alcatraz was not built to escape from. He didn't maybe know that yet. And he isn't going to escape from Alcatraz. And his life is not going to be a very smiling campaign from this day forward. But he still thinks he's got the upper hand. And this is the way many of us are, too, in our sin. It's like, look, I'm totally above all of this, this Christian morality. I'm not saying we in this room are thinking this. This is how the world will oftentimes approach it. And yet it'll eventually catch up with you, as it's going to catch up with Torio, who's not going to live the easiest life from this point forward. It's going to catch up with Capone. It caught up with Dean O'Banion already. You follow the life of any mob boss and you're going to recognize it's not the sweet life that they are trying to get you to think it is. Chicago, when the conscience doesn't play its role. You see, when you listen to the Spirit of God in your life, he can set you free from this, this mob control over your life. But when you continue to allow the officials to be paid off in your own soul, it just leads to a disaster smilingly walking through life, not just smilingly walking out of court, but smilingly walking through life, it's not accomplished by paying off the officials. I'm going to make a premise statement and say the Christian life is designed to smilingly walk through bomb blasts, not just out of court, but literally in every moment to smilingly walk through it. And it is not accomplished the way that the mob or Johnny Torrio is going to teach Capone. Smilingly saying goodbye to life. So when it's time to say goodbye to life, have you ever seen that there's two different ways to die? 
You could be screaming when you die, you could be fearful when you die, or you could be at peace and at rest when you die with a smile on your face. One of my favorite stories in Christian history is Betsy Ten Boom when she died. All alone, she dies. Corey comes in to, to find her, and there she is. There's her body laying there with a smile on its face. In a concentration camp. Yeah, I want to die like that. I don't really want to go to a concentration camp, but when I die, I don't care what the circumstances are. I want to die with a smile on my face. You give me an option, that's what I want to do. I want to walk smilingly out of court. I want to walk smilingly out of this life. So, smilingly saying goodbye to life. These men may have smirked at the court system, but sure weren't smirking when they died. Now, if I went into the death of Al Capone, you would get a real good tutorial on the fact that, yeah, he did have his day and his age and his time when he was famous, and then he's going to disappear. He's going to be in Alcatraz for around 11 years or so. He's going to get out, and he's going to live his final life. He's going to get an early reprieve because of some back-channel communications because his health was so bad. He had syphilis of the brain, and it was eating away at his sanity, and he basically lost his mind. And he is going to retire to some one of his homes in Florida. And you could say, what? How could he get a luxurious ending? Well, it was not a very luxurious ending. It was taunted and tainted and oppressed, I could say very clearly, by demons uh, in his latter days. It's actually very, very sad to me because I actually care about this man. And I feel like in so many regards, we could throw someone like that and say, he deserves what he gets. But so do all of us. And there's part of me that wishes I could intervene in this storyline and change it, but it's very sad what comes from living for self and thinking like a mob boss. Here's something that was written by Marco Margaritoff. By the time of Al Capone's death, the 48-year-old, that's how old he was, which isn't that old, guys, had deteriorated so severely from the advanced syphilis ravaging his brain that he had the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. He always talked about dentine gum. That was his big thing in life that he really wanted. Dentine gum, do you have any dentine gum? He had lost his mental wherewithal. He was no longer a powerful man. He was obese, and he had lost his mind, and he died in great agony. So I want to introduce some real big shots. They didn't just walk smiling out of the courtroom. They danced a Jewish dance as they left it. All throughout Scripture, I'm just going to pick a few just to sort of whet your appetite. David, this guy had real power. He was fearless and even danced. He is going to stare at the most impossible situations that are coming to bring judgment against him. I mean, Goliath is literally, the Philistines are literally coming to say, hey, you're going to prison, right? And he is going to stand up with his five smooth stones and he's going to mock that giant. And he's going to take him down and remove his head. I mean, this is remarkable. Who does that? Talk about having a fearlessness towards that which is coming to bring judgment on your life. Psalm 56.4, this is David speaking. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? That's smilingly walking out of court, guys, right there. And David possessed this. Samson, you know, Samson's a, one of those characters you don't quite know how to relate to in Scripture. You know he's, he's somehow filled with the power of God, but his life is not one that you know, many preachers are going to say, hey guys, we want to live like Samson. But Samson understood this power. They said to Samson, we have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. They bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned like with fire. And his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Uh, walking smilingly out of court? Whoa! In other words, that which comes against the children of God has nothing on us. Now, spiritually, I don't want you to look at this physically, sort of like, yeah, I want to do that to a few Philistines. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against principalities, powers of another realm. We are actually meant to pick up a weapon of warfare 
that devastates the enemy that is trying to oppress us, that is trying to bind us, that we have this authority that we see in this Old Testament picture, we have it in a New Testament fashion. Elisha, 2 Kings 6, 14 through 16. The king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army there where Elisha was. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And they're all come to get Elisha. So talk about your day in court. Elisha has an entire nation's army coming to get him. And so Elisha, his servant, uh, his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. How do you walk smilingly out of court? How do you walk smilingly through a situation where you're surrounded by an entire hostile army that has come to destroy you? You have faith. Faith in the one who is greater than that system of this earth. You see, there is a just condemnation of this earth that is upon us. I don't know if you know this, but you are justly condemned and being brought into court to be tried and indicted and then judged, condemned eternally for your crimes. How do you, how do you walk smilingly out of that court case? How about Peter? Acts 12, six through eight. Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. Uh-oh, he's, he's in a court situation, guys, already uh, with judgment upon him. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. And he walks right out of the prison. Whoa! I mean, this is better than Capone, guys. Capone had a little smirk on his face, and it's not going to go so well for him. Meanwhile, Peter is going to stroll right out of a prison after being chained there. And he's going to start preaching the next day the gospel of Jesus Christ in the streets of the city. It's like, you've got to be kidding. How does this work? You see, what the mob is after is strangely akin to something we have in Christ, but they are going after it the wrong way. And I would say the same thing can happen in our life. The things that we're attracted to in life are usually, especially when we're attracted in the flesh and our first man, they are counterfeits of something true. For instance, you're after pleasure and satisfaction. And yet, did you know that God designed you to be fulfilled and to be satisfied? But he says, in my presence is the fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're going after it the wrong way. I'm trying to get you to my right hand where there are pleasures forevermore, but you're down here creating your organized crime system. That isn't going to do it. That's going to kill you. But if you would allow me to take over your life and set you free from this system, I can give you something so much greater. How to become a big shot in heaven and walk smilingly out of the courtroom. Well, here's the key. You must have the right defense attorney. If you don't hire the right guy, it's not going to go well for you. Here, here's my advice. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I know most of us have never thought of him as being our defense attorney, but that's what a high priest is, really. He's representative of us. He is standing in our place. He is making an argument on our behalf. And the devil has the goods against us, guys. And by the way, he is a legalist, and he remembers every detail, and he is going to accuse us with it all. Because the law of sin and death declares that if you sin, you die. And if you enter into death, you come under his control. He is the prince of that power of darkness. And so legally, when we sin, we enter under his authority. And so he's going to come in, and he's going to make his claim for your soul in that courtroom. Woo, this is a dark day, guys. This is going to be tough. How are we going to get out of this? Make sure you get the right defense attorney. So there's a power of a higher law, which is important for you guys to note or to remember for your sake, because I know you know this. But there's the power of a law, and it's real. It's a real law. Jesus, or I'm sorry, God is going to issue it as his very first command in the scripture, and it's called the, the, the law of sin and death. You sin, 
you die. Or you eat from this tree the day in which you do, you die. So you sin, you die. But there's a higher law, and that is you believe, you live. It's like the plane. Gravity has power over you. You can't fly. But when you enter into that plane, you enter into a higher law called aerodynamics. And when you submit to that plane and its ability to trump gravity, you are able to pull off something that you couldn't if you were outside that plane. You see, that higher law of aerodynamics trumps gravity. Gravity's still there, just like the law of sin and death is still there. You are guilty as charged. That isn't dissipated just because Jesus died. You really are guilty. But to be saved from that, you must by faith enter Christ. Cling to him and remain, buckle your seatbelt in, remain in him, and you will find that that higher law trumps the accusations of the evil one. The devil in the courtroom is going to say this. He sinned. Therefore, according to the law of sin and death, he is mine. And the, you know, the, the, uh, the rest of the courtroom is mumbling to each other. Hey, that's a good argument. He has a good point there. That, that is true. I mean, I've read the law. That's what, exactly what it says. And then Jesus is going to step up. He's going to roll up his sleeves, look back at you, see how you're doing. you got some sweat dribbling down your, your forehead, but you trust him. He, he seems like he knows what he's doing, right? Jesus. But he believed. And therefore, according to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, he is mine. Meanwhile, all the courtroom stands up and they're cheering. They're throwing their hats up in the air. It's victory. And you're sitting there going, ha! Ah! And yet you get up, you know, you straighten out your shirt, and you walk smilingly out of court right past the devil who has nothing on you. You believed, therefore you live. Guys, we are commissioned to walk smilingly out of court, not just that. We're called to walk smilingly through every difficulty, every trial we face in this life. The devil has nothing on us. What can man do to us? We trust our Lord. Though the mountains crumble and fall into the midst of the sea, though the earth be removed, we will not fear. We are believers. He is our refuge, our strength, the very present help in trouble. We will not fear what man can do to us. This is our position. This is our station in life. Romans 8, 31 through 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Listen to this line, guys. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I think he's talking about you. It is God who justifies. Who can bring a charge against you? Because God justifies. The big ambition when everything, including the kitchen sink, is thrown at him, he smirks, winks, and chuckles, and then proceeds to walk out of the courtroom untouched. You thought we were talking about Al Capone. We're talking about you. When the kitchen sink is thrown at you, everything, the devil brings out everything he's got, and you still walk through it all with a smile, that's when you're revealing the kingdom of heaven on this earth. This is our opportunity, guys. This smile that smirk and that chuckle in your soul, keep it and don't give it away. You have something precious that your defense attorney has given you because of his shed blood. Use it with a smirk. Use it with a triumphant gait. And when they take a picture of you walking out of your trial, we want to make sure you're smiling in that picture. Matthew 7, 24 through 25, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. See, that's the sort of house you want to be, the one who can smile when winds and rains beat against you. This is our privilege as the twice-born of Jehovah. Father, give us your smile, your supernatural smile. Lord, I pray that you would inculcate, train us in this life that we would know how to walk smilingly through this life, out of the courtroom. And even when we part ways with this mortal life, Lord, that we would walk smilingly into the heavenly realms. Are you not able to overcome? Have you not saved us? Are you not the victor? Lord Jesus, we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. 
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.